I just want to warn everybody before they listen to this podcast that there's a lot of negativity about IndyCar. Consider yourself warned. Now, From two two big IndyCar fans. Yeah. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the King Hero IndyCar podcast with Kirby and Justin. Kirby, how are you? Doing well, Justin. How about yourself? Kirby, I... uh, it's probably a good thing we took a day or two to do this after the race. Uh, so seething with anger was I on Sunday. That I've, I've had to, time to calm down and put things in perspective. Were you as angry on Sunday as you were on Saturday? Yes, because I don't think you know a couple of fortunate happenstances changes anything in my opinion. Well... At least a rocket ship made its way to the front for a change instead of uh, status quo. Well, Kerr, before we dive into all that, um, let's let's do the correct thing here. Okay. And uh, remember uh, one of the uh, greats in the community that has fallen, uh, Mr. Bobby Unzer. Well-deserved uh, to be remembered. Um, my first favorite driver in IndyCar, Bobby Unzer. And um, I was there, my first Indy 500, 1975, watched Bobby Unser take a second win in a pouring, uh, driving rainstorm. A life well lived, I think, and uh, he deserves to be saluted. Uh, they don't make too many like him. I admire a guy that just kind of lives his life and uh, sometimes in abeyance of what other people think. I always admire that in an individual. And I'd say of the two brothers, Bobby and Al, I mean, Bobby was probably the faster driver. I'm not sure he's a smarter driver, but he was the faster driver. Well, definitely uh, the less conservative driver. He would never admit to being uh, not as smart as his brother, I don't think. But uh, <laughs> No. Well, humility <laughs> was probably not his strongest suit. No, um, that's for sure. Uh, he will be uh, dearly missed, dearly missed. And I, I think you and I, uh, due to our probably our age, is, you know, will always – I mean, for me, Bobby Unzer is – the counterpart to Sam Posey uh, during the ABC broadcast of IndyCar races, which was just the best. Definitely uh, a champion on the track. And Moving on. Curb, I, I, I almost don't know where to start with regard to Texas. There's so much to withdraw from it, I think, in terms of just how IndyCar is functioning as an organization – the racing, there's so much to impact there. It's kind of hard to pick a point uh, that you can that you want to start at. But uh, I'm going to let you have a go at it. Well, I share your frustration without a doubt. And I have a feeling that we're going to go down the rabbit hole here in a minute, um, throwing stones at IndyCar. I'll start out with a generous take being that, uh, once again, NASCAR has ruined a good track for IndyCar. Uh, first Phoenix. Now, uh, Texas, the fact is that IndyCar is in such a weak state relative to NASCAR that uh, they got to take the scraps. Nobody's going to worry about what what effect uh, this change or that change might have on IndyCar when they are making a change to serve NASCAR's purposes. All right, Curb. Well, I think that's an excellent place to start. I commend you on that. Thank Um, you. Underlying all of this is somewhat the impotency of IndyCar to do anything about it. Having said that, you have to question, did they really do everything they could have done about it? I'm going to have to fall on the side of no. 
Uh, would you like some suggestions? Please. Actually, the first one I believe you suggested in our last podcast is why don't they just take a session and uh, and run the second line there for a good half hour on Firestones? And maybe yeah. open up that groove. And yeah. I and, and actually I heard Will Power say the exact same thing. I don't know if you stole it from Will. So I, I was gonna I was gonna credit Will there. I definitely stole it from him. Okay. But it seems like a make seems like a sensible suggestion. Uh, it I, what could it hurt? Right. right. Well um, they they they'd all have to spend, you know, a couple thousand bucks on gasoline, I guess, and the ever present worry of uh crashing or something, right? Well, I don't. Yeah, they, can't, so, they, they can't qualify in, in case they might wreck and not be able to run in the race, and they can't do all sorts of things because they might wreck, right? <laughs> you know. It's, well, it's, let, let's take this uh, particular solution and tear it apart a little bit. It's like who's objecting to it? Because that's, to me, that's that's part of the question of this. And I, I'm I'm going to throw another one in here. Why didn't they bother to qualify on Sunday? They had the time. They had the track. Um, no reason not to do it. Now I, I realize it's two different issues there but and we'll we'll dive into the qualification thing i'm sure a bit more but the, my point is who is making these decisions or if they're still making the decisions not to do these things are there powers that be that are basically prohibiting them from making the decisions because it would seem like anybody with like a half a brain would say ah these sound like really legitimately good things to do kirby is it the owners is it the manufacturers uh, of the the engines, for example, put more miles on them? Is it uh, is it IndyCar itself? Is it uh, Roger Penske? Is it the track, the promoter? I mean, what is preventing these seemingly logical solutions from taking place? You know, whenever fans want to blame IndyCar, uh, often it's leaked out later that. Oh, no, IndyCar wanted to do the sensible thing, but the owners wouldn't let them. The owners mutinied or raised hell or whatever. So, you know, that kind of uh, alleged dysfunction is often cited for why sensible things don't happen. In theory, Roger Penske or Jay Fry or Mark Miles, one of those three is a benevolent dictator here. You would think they would have the the hand, as I think you called it once on one of your travels, you know, the the leverage to make smart decisions, even when some people are going to complain about it. And maybe one of those people thought that not qualifying on Sunday was the smart decision, and we're going to take the flack from Alexander Rossi or Connor Daly or or the fans who uh, wondered the same thing. As always, they keep things shrouded and, and make it hard to figure out who to blame. Right now they're falling back on a rule book and saying, oh, we got to follow the rule book. Yeah. Well, we'll get into that in a minute. The last time I heard somebody read from the rule book, every rule – was followed by a, a subheading that said, at the discretion of IndyCar. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, well, so as far as I can tell, that's a, a, a fungible rule book. Yeah, so what, Kerb, what, just for the people who are listening, you know, what, what you're referring to is like uh, the answer to why they didn't qualify on Sunday and, and instead just went by, uh, I guess, uh, standings, was they cited this ridiculous uh, quote in the rule book, basically saying that, you know, when this happens, you know, you don't qualify and blah, 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 blah. That was just the weakest excuse not to do it. Um, they can, as you said, they can draw a line through that rule book anytime they want and have historically in the past. And that just seems like the lamest of lame excuses to me. 
the rule applies when you had a situation like Saturday when there's a rain out, there's not time. Okay, take your take entrance points. Sunday, they had all day. <laughs> Nothing else to do with their time. A rule that really didn't apply to the situation was applied to it anyway and didn't make sense to most people to do it that way. Try. I've been kind of noodling on this a little bit in the last, uh, I don't know, half hour that I've had freedom my <laughs> day to do so. Okay. And I've come to the conclusion that it is, it's not, it can't be the IndyCar itself. I don't think it's IndyCar itself. I don't think it's the owners. I think there's, it's, it's a more powerful force that's keeping these things. As you pointed out, Will Power said, hey, why don't you try that? Now, Will Power drives for the owner of the series of the series right it seems logical to me that maybe will power you know said hey roger how you doing you know what we should try and do there in texas i mean i i think that conversation probably happened don't you you would think so at a minimum between power and cindric if not power and penske Right. I think at this point we should probably point out to there's probably people listening to our podcast who know nothing about any car and never don't follow it and don't watch the races who are like, when the hell are they talking about? OK, do you think? Yeah, that's probably 90 percent of our demographic. <laughs> OK, OK. Look, what happened is you got this Texas Motor Speedway, which used to have great three wide racing and corners at high speeds. It was very exciting, probably arguably very dangerous, generally put on good races. They put this crap down on the in the on the majority of the track, say two thirds of the track down the turns. Stuff supposed to make the track goopy for NASCARs when they go around to add to the traction to get uh, you know more passing opportunities for NASCARs. The problem is, while it's grippy for NASCAR, it's absolute ice for Indy cars. They can't get this goop off the track, and so therefore, Indy cars can find. Uh, the cars can't move up onto that black surface, really giving it the width of about a half a velodrome to uh, to race on. I mean, it makes it a single car track through the uh, turns. You know, they had to repave the track, I don't know how many years ago, five or six years ago. And when they did that, they changed the configuration of that turn, uh, again, to help NASCAR. I think not quite as steep of a banking and making it wider in that turn. They changed it once to help NASCAR. Apparently, it didn't help enough. So then they added this PJ1 last year, but it certainly has taken what was still a fairly racy track, I think, for IndyCar before the PJ1 was applied uh, into just a nightmare and has ruined the show. You know, they're not going to give up on Texas anytime soon. They're committed to it, but it really has made it a, a, a really challenging situation. I've come to the conclusion this has to be a higher power there that's, that's saying no. So uh, there's only three higher powers that I'd be aware of. And that is uh, the, the engine manufacturers, right? Yeah. Roger Penske himself for whatever personal motivations he has there, or potentially, you know, Eddie Gossage. By all accounts, the, Eddie the owner of the track. By all accounts, Eddie Gossage is doing everything he can. And he's a loyal partner to IndyCar and so on and so forth. Um, I would probably cross him off the list. I can't also imagine why the manufacturers would. Well, I forgot to mention in there. I forgot to mention their Firestone. That would be the other. That'd be the other party. You may not want to throw another set of tires out there to rubber things in. It didn't. It didn't like to give the tires for free. They IndyCar pays a hell of a lot of money for those tires. No, I know. Sure, they pay for the next set. I implore IndyCar just to come clean on this. All right, just tell us why. 
because it, these you know citing rule books and oh well we didn't just have time or think of that is starting to wear thin and and it was an embarrass it's an embarrassment to the to the sport and maybe it's just a statement of the state of IndyCar and where it's at in the in the scheme of things it probably is but God to have two races there back to back that maybe some new eyeballs are watching um, wow it was like last year just a complete disaster in my view well i guess the silver lining is that i saw the ratings um just before we came on this show and i don't think too many new eyeballs were watching so they, <laughs> they they didn't they didn't uh scare away any new eyeballs i don't think yeah roger Pensky uh, has made a statement we need to be there we need to be in texas i i i'm, I'm not why well um in dallas fort worth like number five one of the one of the huge population centers in the country, right? Yeah, and, only, and growing. I think it's a, a fan base you ought to be trying to cultivate if you are. Yeah, right. and what if, what if fifty of them make it out to the track <laughs> on Saturday and Sunday? On Saturday, maybe maybe seventy five on Sunday. But. <laughs> right. Can we move on to the racing at the track itself? Kind of off. The, have we beaten that subject to to appropriate pulp? Sure, sure. Or are you holding back? Let's put it this way. From a TV viewing point of view, that is uh, three at minimum three and a half to four snoozers in a row. And had pretty good ratings at uh, St. Pete. Uh, so-so, you know, decent ratings for St. Bar- for Barber. And they're heading into, of course, the premier month of the year. I certainly hope they can step up their game at the Grand Prix and, and the 500 because, you know, by my account, they went their first 402 laps of the season without a competitive passive lead. Yeah, they can claim four different winners and that type of thing, but uh, certainly lacking in uh, competitive drama. All right. Yeah, so I'm going to dovetail off that a little bit, Curb. Um, we, we commented earlier, uh, and it's been reported earlier in the season, that you know uh, they're going to kind of trim down the commentators for the racing uh, going forward. Uh, like Tracy's only going to do so many of the races. Um, and I got to tell you, watching both of those broadcasts over the weekend it's like wow because in my opinion lee diffie townsend bell and paul tracy were the only ones that kept that thing watchable both races watchable right right sure particularly tracy i think has just been on form lately by the way and Um, i'll i'll throw out a kudo to uh marty schneider too you are such a Marty Snyder lover. I think he does pretty well. They almost they almost treat him like an analyst, you know. They throw to him all the time. Yeah, not, right. not just for normal pit reporting. Well, okay. So and sorry, I forgot to mention Marty Snyder. Apparently, a management decision came down, and uh, Tracy's been reinstated for the whole season. I don't know if you noticed on did you notice on Saturday night that uh, they must have told the story of how Scott Dixon didn't like Texas when he first started racing there. But after he won there, he came to like it. And I swear they told that story at least three times on Saturday night during one race. <laughs> well, when those same guys leading pretty much from start to finish and there's no passing and the, 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 the track's only about as wide as a car. Um, it's like pulling into my garage, my single car garage, the single car side of my garage with the, on the racing <laughs> on that track. Right. Uh, you know, like there's a lawnmower on the right and there's a, you know, some bikes on the left. So you got to kind of slow down going through it. We got to jump into some of the racing, you know, commentary on the racing here. 
Is Felix Rosenquist the new head case in IndyCar? Trying very hard. You know, Hinchcliffe is uh, trying to give him a run for his money. Uh, so I uh, can't single Felix out entirely right now, but uh, definitely a star cross season for him, especially in light of what his teammate's doing. Yeah, and I mean, lots and lots of mental errors there. Been around long enough to where you can't give him that, you know, leeway anymore. To be fair, his teammate let him down. Or I mean, his team let him down in one of those races, right, with the the bad uh, wheel. Yeah, but didn't he take off too early before they fixed it? And I never, I never really saw the uh, explanation on that. I saw, I heard him apologize. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. I missed that one. Yeah. So I. All right. I, I, no, 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 uh, no excuses then for for Felix. Okay. Yeah. So I, I mean, that guy's headed into head case category. Kerba, did you notice? The arrow screen saved more lives on Sunday. Well, when you mentioned hype, when you mentioned hype, I thought, oh, yeah, I forgot to mention that. Uh, at least one, maybe two, I think, if I remember correctly. <laughs> two, I believe, with two two lifesavers. Um, so we can put two more on that list that the arrow screen has saved. Um, yet a remarkable record for the arrow screen. I think we're up to eight now. Uh, eight lives saved in two years uh, when I think you quoted it uh, the previous pre-aero screen era there was one fatality in what was a hundred and something right. odd races yeah right yeah and, and now here in the course of you know less than less than 30 races uh you know we've saved eight yeah i mean it's, it's phenomenal what they've accomplished with that aero screen i really enjoyed after after it was pointed out how the aero screen had saved connor daly's life that uh it is slow-mo of him sliding upside down you know Mm-hmm. And not once did the arrow screen come anywhere near the track. Curb, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it saved his life. Don't, don't well, even question that. I, I guess the uh, roll hoop must have come along with the arrow screen. Then is that it? Curb, let's talk about um, some of the uh, uh, less than savory parts of the race. Um, Sebastian Bourdais has just got to be shaking his head here. Knocked out twice. By being blasted in the back. Right. New Garden it doesn't seem very apologetic about it, to be honest, Kerb, about him, you know, basically taking uh, Bourdais out on Saturday. He didn't seem at all apologetic, actually, in, in the comments I saw. No, uh, it seemed like, you know, H didn't have anywhere to go. They were going too slowly. Uh, the PJ1 made him not want to try to swerve to the outside, figured he'd end up in the fence if he did that so he did all he could do and it wasn't his fault and he wasn't going to apologize for it must have been hanging out with jack harvey last weekend uh, <laughs> before the races but <laughs> while we're on the new garden thing it was very interesting to see how uh, and this is where this might give us a, some insight into who's who's really behind the pulling the strings on this this deal mm-hmm. his comments changed fairly dramatically from like being frank and honest about how bad the surface was to oh it wasn't that bad after I think he'd been talked to. <laughs> Fortunately for us, there's other drivers on other teams that uh, are not afraid to be candid and don't seem to get talked to quite as much. Yeah. But, uh, you know, New Gardens, uh, he was not overly apologetic. He did take out uh, Bourdais. I mean, it certainly wasn't Bourdais' fault. He had to check up for Herta in front of him. Right. Um, that combined with his, uh, you know, taking, you know, three or four out at Barber, I mean, you would think the guy would be a bit more sheepish. And all he got was a penalty and finished, you know, ended up fin- having a decent finish both nights. 
I don't really view what happened on Saturday night as his fault. I mean, uh, it, he got penalized for it, and certainly he was the one that made the contact. But by Bourdais' comments, both being interviewed there during the race and what I read afterward, Herta was going unnaturally slow at that point on the track. I mean, Herta's supposedly slowing down for to enter the pits, but you're just in turn two, not even onto the backstretch yet. And so nobody should be going you know, pit entry speed level at that point in time. And, um, but once again, Colton Herta, you know, kind of walks on water and, and is gets off scot-free while Newgarden takes all the hits. I've noted your, uh, kind of commenting to that effect with, uh, with Herta that, uh, nobody seems to. And, and in fact, I think you sent me a blurb, something on the, you know, even on Sunday, you're thinking maybe he was a bit of the cause of the accordion effect, uh, for the wreck then. Right where the NBC replay comes on, the only gap I can see in the line is between Herta and and the car in front of him, at least almost a you know half to two thirds of a car length. It just raises a question in my mind: Is that where the the accordion effect started? Whether it's running uh, Santino Ferrucci off the track last year, whether it's uh, at least one and maybe two this weekend, uh, nobody's going to point the finger at Brian Herta's kid. Uh, Dixon in Texas last year. Yeah. Took him well, out last year, a year before, I think. Maybe. Yeah, but, sure, uh, maybe a year before. Yeah. Now, no, no, you know, there, Emma Dixon's not afraid to point the finger at anybody. She, she was all over his case, but, but, uh, but anybody else isn't, uh, isn't going to get hot about Colton Herta. He's kind of the benighted, uh, the youngster. So. Okay. Well, your, uh, your cynicism about said individual noted. Kirby, I, you mentioned Hinchcliffe, uh, not very good. Uh, Ryan Hunter Ray, nowhere to be found two nights in a row. It just seems like some of these guys aren't, you know, unless they turn around quick, aren't going to make it this season. No, it looks pretty grim for Hunter Ray. It looks pretty grim for, uh, you know, his clip so far. Ed, Ed Jones. Jones. Ed Carpenter really uh, was a non-factor this weekend. Really, Connor Daly hasn't done much this year. You know, Erickson had some tough luck. Again, a tire falling off in the pits uh, when he was running pretty well on Saturday night. I think that was, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, Harvey, some bad luck on Sunday. So those guys, I think have been driving a little bit better than their standing show. You know, you start pretty soon here, people are going to start looking at the bottom of the standings as much as they are at the top, trying to figure out who's on the bubble for the uh, two non leader circle spots. Yeah. Agreed. Right. Uh, I think it's equally as interesting at this point. Is Mac Chilton's dad going to keep putting the bills if the price goes up a million bucks next year? Or mm. is uh, Dalton Kellett's family going to keep putting the bills if they go up a million bucks next year? Is A.J. Foyt going to pull Kellett again late in the season and put somebody else in there to try to make sure that car finishes in the top 22? Yeah, like Hinchcliffe or Ryan hunter Ray after they're fired midseason. That's right. Hopefully, hopefully Oliver Askew is uh, still working on the same. Oh, we forgot about Oliver. Yeah, of course. Of course. How so. could I do that? Curb. Uh, can we shift gears out of Texas? You do that. It's your show. It's not my show. It's our show, Curb. It's our your show. Lead on. I I heard this comment from two different individuals. Okay, not in the same room talking to the same people at the same time. Uh, both times I heard it, I was like, "Hell, come on!" And that is, I you know, people talk about the golden era of IndyCar racing, you know, being you know. Late 80s, early 90s, or you know, mid 90s, or or you know, stuff like that. I think right now is the golden era of IndyCar. Okay. Would that have been Graham Rahal? He's one, but 
Lee Diffie mentioned, I believe, in Saturday's podcast, there was another individual who said the exact same thing. He's mentioned Sunday's podcast or uh, broadcast, and that was Chip Ganassi. Well, it's a golden era for Chip Ganassi, that's for sure. <laughs> well, <laughs> and I'm trying to think what defines a golden area because it's certainly if their definition is true, it certainly can't mean the golden era can't include good sponsors, crowds, or good TV ratings. The point they're trying to make is the depth of the field. The so I, I think the driver quality is deeper. But that's only one facet of what would generate a golden era of, of open-wheel IndyCar racing in my mind. And um, we're pretty far from it in all other counts besides that one. Yeah, I, 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 I can't agree with any of those comments. Yeah, the racing's okay. But, you know, the racing's really good at, uh, you know, sprint car races, right? Terre Haute. So they say, yes. So, so they say. Not that you or I would know. Um, I, I always say I'm going to go, but I just never make it. Well, I've, I've been to several spin car races in Australia, and they are you know, competitive and exciting in that way. So, but, but my point is that is not what defines a golden era. The point which defines a golden era is when you've got these bigger-than-life, well-known personalities making big money – uh, being you know with big sponsors with huge crowds uh, you know constant media attention you know in the case of IndyCar multiple chassis manufacturers multiple in, uh, engine manufacturers multiple tire manufacturers all wanting a piece of the IndyCar pie that's the golden era not good racing it's just frustrating it is and I think we've kind of turned this podcast into an IndyCar bash. But well, you got to admit that we've kind of been filled with uh, that feeling since Saturday. Message to IndyCar: Stop abusing the fans, right? That's what this really comes down. I don't, I don't know who's pulling the strings that won't, they won't try anything in Texas to fix the track. You know, I don't know why they're so reluctant to maybe even try the outside line and 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 you know run some tires around it so they can get some grip and maybe make a good race. I don't know why they feel like they need to do all this stuff, but just stop abusing the fans. If you want to turn around the, the the race and everything else, stop abusing the fans first. Reeks of curb. If you read, you know, either the split or or the debacle when they had uh, when they canceled the Texas race race and cart, you know, cart uh, canceled right. the Texas because they were going too fast. You know, there are a lot of really bad decisions made by you know all these competing interests, right? Right. And and nobody had the power to to step in and say, you know what. Right, wrong, costs, you know, are indifferent. We're going to do it the right way and the right thing, you know, for the, and nobody was willing to do that. And I think in, in IndyCar, I mean, you would think in Roger Penske, you've got an individual that has the power. By all accounts, he's, he's paid to be in Texas, like, you know, right? I think IndyCar yeah, well, paid to be there. They made some sort of financial concessions to have a doubleheader there. I don't know. Invested something to make that come He off. certainly invested something. So I – I think he should get some money back on his investment. And, you know, he just – look, I'm not criticizing Roger Penske because, you know, he's probably saved IndyCar as we know it. But so he has to – my suggestion would be to empower somebody there to fix these type of problems and just overrun everybody and take the risk that you're going to piss off a few camps. Put the fan experience – on top of everybody else's interest, because when you serve that as interest in the long run, you'll serve everybody else's interest, right? Yeah. Kirk, there's more passes in F1 these days for the lead. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, I haven't seen any, but yeah, that's what I hear. Yeah. 
That's what I'm telling you. I mean, Curb, I don't know. I'm spent. I'm spent with the negativity. I know. I feel badly about it. Here's some good news. Did you see the good news? No, I didn't. Uh, much to our uh, apparently incorrect premonition, Danica will be back for the broadcast of the 500. Curve, you beat me to the punch because that was my last thing I was going to talk about. Uh, turning it into a positive. We got Danica back one more time. And Jimmy Johnson. And a NASCAR crew chief, Steve Letarte. So, yeah. <laughs> we're we're going to drag those NASCAR fans into IndyCar kicking and screaming if they – don't forget Rutledge Wood. And, um, yeah. And, uh, uh, and oh, uh, uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr. will be on the pre-race show. All right, well, hint to uh, NBC people, if you want to save some money, start with Rutledge Wood. I understand they're bringing him to the 500 every year, but they actually took him down to St. Pete. I know. You know that's an expenditure and an effort. And did you see how much those uh, temporary boat slips cost? 10000 bucks. Ten grand for the, ten grand for the, the weekend. weekend. Yeah. Uh, trust me, if you have one of those boats, uh, ten grand like falls out of your pocket. Um <laughs> Kerb, I got to ask you a question. I've been meaning to look this up because I literally don't know the answer. Maybe you do. Okay. Is Rutledge Wood the kid on Hot Tub Time Machine? You know, strangely enough, I've never seen that movie. Um, <laughs> Why doesn't that surprise me? Oh, my God. Uh, I, I, my impression is he's just somebody of Dylan Hur Jr.'s. Okay. But, because if he's not that guy. I, I might literally die in shock because it's so close. Um, it, he just looks like an older, fatter version of that kid. Um, and I'm looking it up right now. Okay, so it's not him. It's a guy named Clark Duke, which I swear to God, if you watch that movie, Curb, watch that movie tonight. I, I swear that was Rutledge Wood. It's not, apparently. But you got to watch that movie, if, if for no other reason, to see Little Rutledge Wood. Who isn't Little Rutledge Wood? Okay. Well, I'm just intrigued that uh, Chevy Chase is in it. Chevy Chase is in it. He, he phones one in for a few bucks, I assume. All right. Well, there you go. There's, uh, there's a lot there to unpack in Hot Tub Time Machine, starring a guy who looks a lot like a young Rutledge Wood. And sounds like them, too. Right. All right. Well, that's enough of that. Good night, everybody. 